0: I'm John. And I'm John. We're classically trained conductors. Who are also working theater music directors. Each week, we'll tell you a little bit about shows we enjoy. And why you should check them out. If you haven't yet. This is Musical Minutes with John and John. Hi all, and welcome to Season 2 of Musical Minutes with John and John. I am John Noreen, and as we talked about briefly in our Season 2 promo, John McKeever is going to be kind of in and out of this season, but don't worry, we have some fantastic things lined up this season. We'll be covering some of our favorite shows, we'll be doing February flops, as we talked about, we'll be having interviews and we'll be having guest hosts, and there will be a couple of solo episodes done by me where I talk about some shows that I'm interested in. (laughs) So, let's get things started off right with our first episode. Today I'll be talking about Kismet, with book by Charles Lederer and Luther Davis, music by Alexander Borodin, Robert Wright, and George Forrest. The lyrics were by Robert Wright and George Forrest, and Kismet was adapted from a play of the same name by Edward Knobloch. Kismet opened at the Ziegfeld Theater on December 3rd, 1953, and ran 583 performances before closing on April 23rd. 1955. Kismet was directed by Albert Mare, choreographed by Jack Cole, and music directed by Louis Adrian. The original cast included Alfred Drake as Haj, Henry Calvin as the Wazir, Joan Diner as Lalume, and Richard Kiley as the Caliph. Kismet was nominated for three Tony Awards and won all three. Best Musical, Best Leading Actor, and best music director, conductor. Kismet opens with the sun rising and an imam offering morning prayers in the mosque. Outside the mosque, a poet is trying to sell his wares with the help of his daughter, Marizna, and is quite unsuccessful. Undaunted, the poet sends Marizna to procure some food for their breakfast while he sits down to beg next to a trio of beggars. They protest at first, as the spot is usually reserved for their friend, Haj the Sorcerer. After earning a few coins, the poet is mistaken for Haj and kidnapped. He is brought before Joan, a notorious brigand. It seems that the real Haj had placed a curse on the thief's son, and now Joan wants it removed. The poet, now answering to the Haj moniker, agrees to do so for a hundred gold. Soon after, the wazir of police walks through the bazaar with his wife Lalume. It appears that the wazir, in addition to being, well, evil, is also hard up for money. He makes a deal with the king of Ababu to marry off the caliph to at least one of the princesses of Ababu, and now Lalume is tasked with escorting the princesses through the city. Acting as a tour guide of sorts, she extols the sights that they see. Meanwhile, Marizna is being pursued by a merchant. She was less than successful in procuring breakfast. The poet arrives and pays off the merchant and disappears after giving Marisna half of the remaining money. She makes her way out of the bazaar where she catches the eye of the caliph who is in disguise. He is instantly captivated by her beauty. She looks at a house for her father and herself. The caliph sneaks into the garden and pretends to be the gardener and introduces himself to her they fall in love and promise to meet again at moonrise after marisna leaves the caliph rejoins his advisor and tells him that he is in love which is overheard by the now furious princesses of ababu back in the bazaar the poet is caught up in a police sweep they're looking for joan when stopped the chief notices the money that the poet has is stamped with the crest of a family that Jawan stole from, and the poet, who everyone still thinks is Haj, is arrested for theft. The evil wazir sentences the poet to 20 lashes and removal of his right hand. The poet begs to keep his hand. After all, as a poet, it would be impossible to live as the appendage is what tells the story. His words move Lalume, and she begs her husband for mercy on behalf of the poet. Unmoved, the wazir has the poet dragged off to meet his punishment. Suddenly, the door swings open and a guard rushes in. They have captured the brigand Jawan. As he is dragged in, Jawan notices the poet and asks him where his son is, but is quickly distracted by a medallion around the wazir's neck. It is the same medallion that Jawan's son was wearing when he disappeared. The wazir is Jawan's son. Jawan praises the poet, who, again, he thinks is Haj. The wazir accepts the news that Jawan is his father, but still sentences the brigand to death, saying, For the leading judge of Mesopotamia to have as a father the leading criminal of Mesopotamia is a disturbing thought. Jawan is led away, and the wazir is about to murder the poet who, still, everyone thinks is the sorcerer Hajj, for cursing him with a miscreant father when the Caliph enters and announces that he has met, fallen in love with, and intends to marry a commoner. Of course, this will ruin all of the wazir's financial plans. He decides that this is just the continuation of Haj's curse and begs the poet, who is still not Haj nor a sorcerer, to reverse the curse. Lalome, who seems to be one of the few sensible persons in the room, since she knows that the poet is neither Haj nor a sorcerer, and she agrees to help the poet. Of course, she has an ulterior motive, She's looking to escape the clutches of the wazir, and is falling in love with the poet. The poet uses a fake invocation and dancing girls to distract the wazir, and jumps out a window, leaving his coat behind. The wazir, who takes this as a sign of sorcery, faints. Act two opens with the caliph and his wedding retinue returning to the garden at Moonrise, while Marizna waits for her beloved gardener. The poet enters and tells Marizna about what happened, hoping the two of them can escape to Damascus. She does not want to go, and the two argue. The poet loses his temper, and he almost strikes his daughter. He's instantly ashamed and runs off. She runs off in the opposite direction, and when the caliph arrives, he finds the house and garden empty. Word gets back to the wazir of the disappearance of the caliph's bride, and he's overjoyed. He names the poet as his personal magician, and tells Lalume to keep him entertained, which, of course, she's more than happy to do. The wazir walks out of the room, and the two talk about taking a trip to a small oasis a week's travel by camel, when they are interrupted by Marisna. Her father and she quickly reconcile, and she asks him to help her find her beloved gardener, who is really the caliph, and who is now in the next room over. In the next room, the caliph orders the wazir to help him find his love. Trying to convince him that love is fleeting, the wazir shows the caliph a secret peephole into the next room that happens to hold the poet Murizna and Lalame and implies that the room is, in fact, his personal harem. The caliph is horrified to see Marizna in the room. Heartbroken, he says he will marry one of the princesses that night at his party. Of course, the wazir now has to marry Marizna as to not be a liar, which he quickly does, all the while thinking that the poet arranged all of this for him. That night... The caliph is dancing with various princesses, but unmoved by all of them. The wazir runs into the poet and thanks him for placing Marizna in his harem. He laughs that he had to marry Marizna, which of course enrages the poet. He pulls a knife, but stops and quickly devises an act of more sophisticated revenge. He finds and throws a blank plaque into the fountain, announcing that when it is retrieved, it will read the name of the caliph's true bride. He then secretly gives to the wazir a second plaque with the name Ababu inscribed on it and instructs him to retrieve plaque number one and replace it with plaque number two. As the wazir goes to step into the fountain, the poet trips him and then holds him under water until he drowns. Shocked, the caliph demands to know what is going on but is distracted by a joyful reunion with Marizna. The Caliph is about to pardon the poet for murdering a public official, who everyone still thinks is Hajj, but the poet demurs. He requests that he be banished to an oasis at least a week away by Camel. Further, he should be forced to take the wazir's widow with him, so that he may comfort her in her grief. And the Caliph agrees. One of the things that fascinates me about this show is its combination of the classical and the Broadway. The primary music from this show is actually taken from the collected works of Alexander Borodin, who was a 19th century composer in Russia and actually part of what was called the Mighty Handful or the Mighty Five, which was a group of five composers in Russia during the time that were known for their nationalistic music, for their contributions to the Romantic period and the orchestral output. But this isn't actually the first show that composers Robert Wright and George Forrest wrote that incorporated classical music into their stories. First they did The Song of Norway, which featured the music of Edvard Grieg. Then there was Gypsy Lady, which used the music of Victor Herbert. Magdalena, which used the music of Hector Villalobos, which is interesting because the composer was actually still alive at the time, and so he helped do some of the music for that show. Then there was the Great Waltz, which featured the music of Waltz King Johann Strauss, then Kismet, which is the music of Alexander Borodin, and then they ended with Anya, which featured the music of Sergei Rachmaninoff. It's interesting to note that Kismet was actually reworked into Timbuktu, which is the same story, similar music taken from Alexander Borodin, but reset with a purely African-American cast. If there are people out there who are familiar with uh, the music of Isaac Hayes, he actually recorded a cover in his signature style of Stranger in Paradise, which was done in conjunction with the production of Timbuktu. This music, as I mentioned, for me really is a love letter to Alexander Borodin, and for someone like me who is steeped in classical music, just absolutely fantastic. The writing team was not only well-versed in the music, but they used it in such a way as to retain the distinct sound of the composer. Dances for dances, fate for fate. And some of the things they use, so like, for example, Sands of Time, they use in the Steps of Central Asia. They use multiple movements of his Second Symphony. Arguably, Borodin's most well-known work, the Polovtsian Dances, is used in Bazaar of Caravans, Not Since Nineveh, Stranger in Paradise, He's in Love, Various Dances. The String Quartet is used multiple times and in multiple movements. He even dips into arias and scene music from Prince Igor to flesh out some of the tunes to provide background music. And what they were most successful in, and one of the things I most enjoy about this show, is that it still sounds like Borodin to me. They're not taking the tunes and dressing it up in such a way where it's losing the character, where it's losing that idiomatic punch that the composer really puts towards the music but uses that music uses that character to emphasize their story and as for that story I appreciate the fact that even back in the 1950s even though this show was meant to focus on the quote-unquote exoticness of Arabia it really discards many of the stereotypical tropes that you would have that are associated with this kind of romanticized A Thousand and One Nights, Alibaba and the Forty Thieves, just this trope of the stock Arabic good guy, the stock Arabic bad guy, and beautiful dancing girls and harems. And, you know, yes, all this show does have that, but it's not necessarily playing it up saying, ooh, look how foreign and weird this is. It's really presented as part of really everyday life, for lack of a better term. A lot of the characters that you expect to be kind of little tropes really avoid that. You have the Caliph, who's the young ruler of this unnamed country, but is rather well-liked. He's even-headed. You've also got the Wazir, who yes is the bad guy and yes as we talked about in the rundown is what you would call evil but he's not this stock arabic villain he's not doing things because of well that's what someone who is a practitioner of islam that is not someone who is the evil stock arabic character would do he's he's more nuanced he's got he's got his evil plans yes but he's not Necessarily tropic in executing them. Um, and then you have Lalume, you have Marisna, who are these well rounded out female characters that have their own wants, that have their own story, that have their own journey. And it's something that you kind of lose in a lot of the kind of tropic, stereotypical exoticness that you would see in, again, uh, dipping into the classical world, a Turandot, or something along those lines, a Madame Butterfly, where your, your foreign characters are played into those stereotypes for the sake of exoticness. Yes, in Kismet, these characters are Arabic, but it is not playing into every Arabic trope that we would have had in the 50s, or even today. And this show would actually, in my opinion, be something that would be fantastic to see remounted in a modern production where we can do some more appropriate casting. Now, again, it's the 1950s, and we've got some, you know, quote-unquote names here: Alfred Drake, Richard Kiley, Joan Diner. These are well-known names from the 1950s. These were character actors. Richard Kiley would be would go on to be known for doing Man of La Mancha the voice of the cars from Jurassic Park because they spared no expense. Alfred Drake, same deal. Well-known as a character actor. In In the 50s, this is what they did. It wasn't correct. It wasn't proper then as it isn't proper now. But this show, with some, you know, minor updating, couple of streamlining things here and there, would be fascinating to see presented in a modern setting with the appropriate... Racial casting to tell the story. So that's going to just about do it for this episode. If you are looking to listen and learn a little bit more about Kismet, there are a couple of different recordings out there. There is the original Broadway cast, which is incredible. There is a studio recording that was done about 10 years later that again is fantastic and then there's also a movie version which streamlines a lot of the music cuts a couple of numbers all of them are great examples of this show they're going to give you a sense of the music and just the glory that is boradine well that should just about do it for this episode if you'd like to reach out to us you can drop us a line at musicalminutespodcast at gmail.com you can also follow us on Facebook at Musical Minutes with John and John, or on Twitter at Musical Mins Pod. That's Musical M-I-N-S Pod. Intro and outro music, Bebop 25, is provided under the Creative Commons Attribution 4.0 International License by Jason Shaw on Audionautics.com. Thank you for joining us. I'm John. And I'm John. And we'll see you next time.